So when we see these signs for the second coming being fulfilled, we know the rapture is that much closer. And one of those signs is the coming apostasy, the coming falling away. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series entitled, God's Prophetic Schedule. We are living in a day certainly of false cults, religious pluralism, and fanaticism. And it may seem as though hell is in charge, but it's not. Our God is in charge. Today's sermon is entitled, End Times Apostasy. And we will be in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 6, as Dr. Brogy addresses the church's conduct, the church's confession, and the church's concern in the midst of apostasy in the last days. Please join us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, as we begin. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T, they're found in the New Testament. They go from long to short, and they're right after Gary eats popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you can find any one of those books, you can find nine books in the New Testament. We're in a series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. We're between books of the Bible. Usually I preach through entire books, but we're between books right now. Today I want to speak about end times apostasy. Now sometimes people ask me, do I believe if we are living in the last days? And my answer is, well, it all depends on what you mean by that. It would seem natural to think that the last days refers only to that future time just before Jesus comes back from heaven. But as you read the New Testament, it becomes obvious that the apostles understood that this new age called the last days began with the enactment of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, the old age, the old covenant, the old deal passes away to the last days because a new time has dawned. This is what Peter said when he stood up on the day of Pentecost. Listen to these words from Acts 2. But this, what they had just witnessed, this miracle of people speaking all these different languages and dialects within the language that they had never learned previously, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And so Peter believed that he was in the last days with the coming of the indwelling promised spirit of God. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews says this in the opening chapter, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so the writer of the Hebrews believed that he was living in the last days. This being so, the New Testament teaches that with the beginning of the birth of the church, we have been in the last days. You say, well, how could it be that we're in the last days because it's been centuries since the church was started? Well, just know that the scriptural writers, when they're inspired by God, they're not always using the terms the way you think they should use the terms. 
in their mind, the supreme event, the greatest of all events, the events of all events that altered forever the course of human history was the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And from that moment on until Jesus returned, God's people were living in the last days because it was possible for anyone who would turn in faith to Jesus to be saved. And so these days differ from all the days that came before Jesus' incarnation. Add to that, the New Testament writers also believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. When we speak of the imminency of Christ's return, we are affirming that he could come back at any moment, that nothing prophetically has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and snatch away the church to catch us up. Maybe it will happen today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. But the promise Jesus made will be fulfilled. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where he is at this moment in heaven, someday he is coming to catch up the church and to carry us there. Now, I've heard people quote verses like Matthew 24 and verse 13, where Jesus said, this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. And they say, well, the gospel has to be preached to the whole world for Christ to come back. Yes, for the second coming, but not for the rapture. In fact, contextually, there in the Olivet Discourse is the book of Revelation affirms that promise will be fulfilled during the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call the great tribulation period. So when we think of the second coming, it's part of a predicted prophecy-driven schedule where the rapture as always could happen at any moment. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. There has to be a one-world government. There has to be a one-world economy where people will not be able to buy or sell anything unless they take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. And all of these kinds of things will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation. And that's why the rapture is pictured before the tribulation. That's why it's described as something that could happen at any moment because of its imminency. Now, let me just say the Bible can use the term the last days also to refer to that final time frame just before Jesus comes back. And so context determines the meaning of terms. With that said, I believe with all of my heart that we are living in the last of the last days, that we are living in the closing shadows that will lead to the catching up of the church in Christ's second coming. You say, well, how can you be so certain? Because God predicted at the end of time before Messiah's second coming that he would gather the Jewish people into the land. God wrote of their scattering, and then he wrote of their regathering. Listen to what Moses said concerning their scattering. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. He's not talking about the Assyrian captivity or the Babylonian captivity. He's talking about their being driven among the nations of the world. Jesus made this same prophetic statement on the Mount of Olives in Luke chapter 21. He said, after the temple is destroyed and they will fall by the edge of the sword, meaning the Jewish people, and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles 
are fulfilled. And that all started to happen in 70 AD. Moses gave the same warning in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to these words. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. However, Moses also wrote 1,400 years before Christ, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. He wrote of this truth earlier. I just read it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. But then a few verses he quickly adds. But from there... You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things happen to you in the latter days, or you could render it the last days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. So Moses clearly has in view an event that would take place in the latter times at the end of time. And so for 1,900 years, it appeared that God was doing nothing. And so the amillennialists of our day who say God's done with the nation of Israel, those who came out of Catholicism, like Calvin and Luther, they were taught as young men that the church was the new Israel. They just put a different spin on it. And they thought that God had no future for Israel. And it appeared they were right for 1,900 years. Who would have ever have dreamed in May of 1949 that God would bring the children of Israel back into the land and make them a nation? So when we see these signs for the second coming being fulfilled, we know the rapture is that much closer. And one of those signs is the coming apostasy, the coming falling away, an apostasy that will lead to the apostasy of all apostasies. An apostasy that will take place in the latter days at the end of time. That's what our text deals with. He's going to unfold it in the fourth chapter. But to understand it, we need to begin in chapter 3 in verse 14. Follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. As we speak on this subject of apostasy, I think it's very important that we define some terms. Apostasy is not atheism. Apostasy is not agnosticism or Buddhism or Hinduism or any of the other isms that you can think of. 
In fact, as you look at the word apostasia, it comes directly as apostasy into our English Bibles. It simply means to fall away. And in the New Testament, it has a narrow context. Specifically, it refers to someone who claims to follow Christ Jesus, claims to be a Christian, and then in the process, they either A, embrace heresy, or they completely renounce Jesus altogether. They either create a new form of Christianity, which is apostasy, falling away from the faith, or they just turn their back on Jesus 100%. Now, there are people who have never, ever even heard the name of Jesus who cannot be apostates because they can't fall away from something that they've never heard. So that's not the focus of our subject today, though certainly apostasy helps create fertile ground for unbelief in other realms. I went into the ministry just shy of 45 years ago. And I want to tell you, in the last three or four years, I've seen more pastors, associate pastors, music pastors, evangelists, and so-called Christian apologists turn their back on the Christian faith than I had in the prior 40 years. In fact, there's a new term for evangelicals. It's exvangelical. And that's what they call themselves, people who have turned away from the faith. And we're living in a day certainly of false cults, of religious pluralism and fanaticism, We're living in days which hell seems to be in charge, but it's not. Our God is in charge, and he has written about this in advance, and he wants you and I to understand it. Listen to what Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. He also said in the same sermon, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So such times should not be of surprise to us because the scripture prophesied these things as the apostle Paul does this morning in our text. The Bible predicted these days would come. And so how can the church minister in times like these? Do we uh, just fold up shop? Do we create big walls and go into hiding? Do we camouflage our lives? Do we go on the defense rather than the offensive? Well, God gives us some clear instruction. We need to be faithful to the admonition, come out and be separate from them, saith the Lord, and at the same time, faithful to the commission, go and preach the gospel to every person under heaven. And so this morning, there are three principles, I believe, that God gives us for effective ministry while God is building his church, which will be completed, of course, at the rapture. Three principles of how a body of Christians like this body can be effective in a tidal wave of sin and apostasy. The first that I want us to consider is the church's conduct in the midst of apostasy. Let's think for a moment about the church's conduct in the midst of apostasy. Right here in verses 14 and 15, Paul spells out for us his motivation for writing the letter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So he's writing to instruct us about our behavior in the church of the living God and what our duties are as members of a local church. Now, these few verses have tremendous implications for us today. 
And there are many today who think that the church is some ancient institution that is irrelevant, and so they either totally ignore it or they refashion it into what they think it should be. But the church is a divine institution. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are for defensive purposes. We're not on the defense. We're on the offense. We are to charge an unbelieving world with truth. And sadly, today, I think there are many Christians who are asleep who have no idea as to what is really happening in the day in which we are living. And so we would be wise to listen to God's counsel. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delighted, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I'm writing. This is important. And he's writing with a sense of his own biblical apostolic authority. He is aware of the fact that he is an apostle, that he is speaking on God's behalf, and they need to listen. I mean, how else do you take the language, this I command you, or these words, if anyone does not obey the instructions I lay down, take note of him. And so Paul is writing. He's going to come himself and personally investigate some of the reforms that he's going to give to Timothy. He recognizes that he is providentially delayed at this moment, and thank God he was. Otherwise, we would not have the book of 1 Timothy. But in the meantime, Timothy, I'm telling you as the shepherd of the church there in Ephesus how you are to pastor that church. So this is apostolic authority. He's not giving his own opinion. He's writing under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And so the New Testament is our foundational deed. It's our constitution. It's our ministry manual of how we should live. And I think it's interesting to note here from this verse how Paul combines both doctrine and practice. And he does that in most of his letters. He tells us what we are to believe. Then he tells us how we are to behave. But he recognizes that knowledge all by itself without application will just make you proud and puffed up. And so in verse 14, he says, I am writing these, these instructions to you. He's referencing what he had previously written earlier in the letter. And so his instruction in chapter 3 in verse 5 is all a part of what it means to take care of the church of God. If you've read this letter, then you know in chapter 1, he instructed the church how to be alert and aware of false teachers that would come in. Then in chapter 2, how the church should conduct itself in public worship. Then in chapter 3, how to select pastors, men, not women, men. There are no women pastors. Any woman who calls herself a pastor is not a pastor. It's a made-up title because God has specific roles that some only men can do in the church and others that only men can do in the church. And so he gives the doctrinal qualifications for someone to be an elder, and he's getting ready to give instruction on how we should apply this doctrine. So what he wants us to hear in verse 15 is critically important because what you believe will always dictate potentially how you behave. That's true in every realm. 
Some people have a blessed marriage for the simple reason that they understand God's blueprint for marriage. They understand the doctrinal truths behind marriage, and with that knowledge, they can apply it and see God's blessing. Some do not have a blessed marriage because they don't know what God has said. Some are not raising godly children. They're raising juvenile delinquents for the simple reason they do not know what God says about how to raise a godly heritage. Some people today are in financial bondage for the simple reason they do not know what God's principles are concerning giving, saving, investing, planning, budgeting, and so on. And so right behavior always comes from right doctrine. Proper behavior comes from sound teaching. And so in verse 15, the Apostle Paul gives us three wonderful truths about the church. Don't miss them. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So notice how he describes God's people, the household of God, number one. Number two, he calls us the church of the living God. And number three, he calls us the, the pillar in support of the truth. And in each of these phrases, he describes a different aspect of the church as it relates to our duty and to our responsibility as church members. And so he's reminding the elders, he's reminding the deacons, he's reminding the church members. And by the way, he assumes that the people that he is writing are church members. God knows nothing of an unaffiliated Christian in the New Testament. If you're born again, wherever you may be in the world, you need to be a member of the best Bible-believing church you can find in your area. It might not be all that you would like it to be, but if they have the gospel, then you should give yourself to that group of people, and you should be under the leadership of those elders. So to conduct ourselves properly, especially in days when folks are falling away, he first reminds this point A there on your outline, that the church is the family of God. The church is the family of God. Again, in verse 15, I write so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Now, the word household is the Greek word oikos. Some older translations say the house of God, and certainly the word oikos can refer to a house but the church, the people of God, can also rightly be described as God's house, God's church. By the way, I hope you know never once in the New Testament does the term church refer to brick and mortar. It always refers to people. It is true under the old covenant that God had a uh, temple for his people, but under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. And in this context, unlike in uh, 17th century English where it was understood, today the word house typically refers to a building. But even if you didn't know Greek, you could figure it out contextually that he's using the term oikos in reference to a family. And so some translations render it that way to bring out the warmth. I mean, think about it. Paul has already said in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 12 of this chapter that the church, in essence, is a family. In verse 4, for instance, he mentions that a pastor must be one who manages his own household well. What's he talking about? He's talking about the man's family. Just as a man's household refers to his family, even so the church, the body of Christ, refers to a family. And so this concept of the church being God's family 
is much underscored in the New Testament. And so one of Paul's favorite words is the term brethren, or you could paraphrase it, brothers and sisters. When a sinner is born again, he immediately becomes a member of a family and will become brothers and sisters in Christ. When you come to chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to advise young Timothy how to treat members of the local church. Why? Because they are his family. So he gives specific instructions to older men, how you interface with them, younger men, older women, and so forth. And, uh, of course, it's a beautiful term because it gives a sense of warmth. I hope you are a member of a church family. We often say to people, do you have a church family? That's good theology because that's really what the local assembly is. It is a family. And again, he's assuming that people have made that kind of commitment. But since the church is not a building but a family, it is a living organism. And like with any living organism, it needs to be fed. And so a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the flock. And it's not by accident that God uses food terms to describe his word. Milk, meat, honey, bread. And so the church cannot grow from being fed. And God's church does not grow simply by addition, it grows by nutrition, because when the people of God are fed, healthy sheep will eventually reproduce. And it's very tragic in our day to see so many pastors who waste their time in the church's time doing all the wrong things, such that when they stand up on the Lord's day, they have very little to say. And that's why I come prepared to preach this book every week, because I'm not here to reveal my mind, I'm here to reveal God's mind. I've come to preach the Word, and I hope you've come to listen to the Word, and I hope you're listening and won't stop before I'm done preaching, all right? So first, the church is the family of God. Secondly, the church is the assembly of God. The church is the assembly of God. I write that you might know how to conduct himself in the church of the living God. The word church is the word ecclesia, and it's a word that refers to an assembly of people, and it's used in different ways and in different contexts. Stephen uses it in Acts 7 to describe the children of Israel. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but he is just describing that there was an assembly of people in the wilderness, Acts 7, 38. It's the word ecclesia. The same word is used in Acts 19 of an unbelieving mob that hate the apostles so much they want to kill him. They're called the church. It's an assembly, in that case, of people who hate the Apostle Paul and what he stands for. Very often, the word ecclesia is used to describe the whole body of Christ, but most often, nearly a hundred times in the New Testament, it is used to describe the local assembly, the local assembly of God's people. And so the phrase, the living God, is an expression that's in direct contrast to the paganism of the first century, where people had idols that they displayed like something in a museum. And yet God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the one true living God lives in a community. Join us next week Monday as Pastor Carl continues his sermon on End Times Apostasy. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program G1.
GPS004. Also, remember that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.